Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to CNN Tonight. I'm Jake Tapper. Our cherished ideals of free speech are in the hands of erratic billionaires the most recent of whom is Ye, the artist formerly known as Kanye West, who today announced he is going to purchase Parler. Do you know what Parler is? The word might invoke the image of a fancy room where cute little old ladies sit and sip their tea from good china, but Parler is decidedly not that. Parler is a far-right fringe social media platform, and you first might have heard of it around the time of the Capitol insurrection, January 6, 2021, because Many of the violent rioters organized on Parler, podcast host Kara Swisher, that very day asked one of the founders of Parler if he felt any responsibility for the death and destruction, to which he said this. I don't feel responsible for any of this, and neither should the platform, considering we're a neutral town square that just adheres to the law. So if people are organizing something, that's more of a problem of people are upset, they feel disenfranchised. Yes, people were upset and they felt disenfranchised. Not long after that interview, Apple and Google removed the Parler app from their stores. Amazon stopped providing it with web hosting services, and that CEO was fired. And today, Parler markets itself as the premier global free speech platform. Premier might be a little generous, given that Parler saw just 0.02% of the visitors that Twitter saw last month. Either way, the site is popular among conspiracy theorists, election liars, and bigots. Today, Parler celebrated the New Deal, saying that Kanye West made, quote, a groundbreaking move into the free speech media space and will never have to fear being removed from social media again. Now, long before all of this, you probably first became aware of Ye, or Kanye West, as a musical genius. I'm so gifted at finding what I don't like the most. So I think it's time for us to have a toast. A fantastic song, Runaway, but... Kanye's antics have long threatened to overshadow his talents, the first glimmers of which we saw when he jumped on stage at MTV's 2009 Video Music Awards after Taylor Swift beat out Beyonce for Best Female Video. I'm going to let you finish, but Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. We all had our opinions about that interruption, including President Obama. The young lady seems like a perfectly nice person. She's getting her award. What's he doing? Why would he do that? He's a jackass. Jackassery is one thing, bigotry quite another. And Kanye's interest in buying Parler comes just days after Instagram and Twitter restricted his accounts in response to his blatant anti-Semitism, including a tweet where he vowed to go, quote, DEFCON 3 on Jewish people at a time when anti-Semitic violence in the United States is at an all-time high. 
according to the Anti-Defamation League. So when Parler celebrates the free speech, let's be clear, Kanye wasn't blocked from Twitter and Instagram because he challenged critical race theory or vaccine mandates. It was because he threatened to kill Jews. Kanye was also recently seen wearing a White Lives Matter shirt, a line that some on the right began using in response to the Black Lives Matter movement. Modeling alongside Ye there is conservative commentator Candace Owens. It may or may not surprise you to learn that Candace Owens' husband, George Farmer, just so happens to be the CEO of Parler's parent company. So Kanye now becomes the latest billionaire to buy his way into the social media legion of doom. Former President Donald Trump, who was suspended from Facebook and Twitter after, of course, he incited that deadly capital insurrection, he has Truth Social. And Elon Musk will likely soon own Twitter. Twitter, where well before offering to buy it, Musk has been an active user with 109 million followers. Musk has posted quite a few controversial tweets. The one I can't get out of my head has to do with this man, Vernon Unsworth. Vernon Unsworth helped save 12 boys in Thailand after they were stranded inside a flooded cave for weeks on end. Unsworth is such a hero, he's depicted in Ron Howard's new movie, 13 Lives, about that incredible rescue. 12 boys and their coach are trapped in the flooded cave. Hello? Hey, they're here. Now, at the time, Elon Musk tried to get in on the rescue, offering a miniature submarine, which Unsworth called a PR stunt. And Musk, he didn't like that. He called the cave diver a, quote, pedo guy, which Unsworth and pretty much everyone else took to mean pedophile. A hideous charge that Musk doubled down on and tripled down on, and Unsworth took Musk to court for defamation. It's a case that Unsworth lost. Vernon went toe-to-toe with a billionaire bully. Not many people have the courage to do that. So that was a court-ruled, legally protected speech by Elon Musk. But that does not make it right, which is the area in which we find ourselves in this debate. None of Musk's bizarre and offensive tweets have met the bar for removal from Twitter. After all, that's the rub. What is the bar? And who decides? Facebook's own ad seems to acknowledge that they're not equipped to make these calls. I don't know if that is right to have a private corporation like Facebook dictating what those boundaries are. One of the reasons we're even having this discussion is that social media companies have, really mainly since the pandemic began, put their hand on the lever, and sometimes messed up. Take, for example, the idea that COVID possibly came from a lab accident or a lab leak. Even credible scientists started saying that that was something the medical community should be investigating. But regardless, Facebook flagged those posts as false or debunked. Facebook attached fact-check warnings to any posts questioning the idea of whether or not the virus had originated in a wet market until until the Biden administration said that they were going to investigate it, and then the ban was lifted. A similar story when just before the 2020 election, the New York Post started reporting that the FBI had obtained a laptop 
belonging to Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, containing all sorts of hideous material. Facebook and Twitter took steps to bottle up that reporting and keep the post stories from being shared. The FBI, I think, basically came to us, some, some folks on our team, and was like, hey, um, just so you know, like, you should be on high alert. But now we know that other media organizations, including the Washington Post, have authenticated some of the emails on the laptop and that there is a federal investigation going on right now into Hunter Biden. These kinds of decisions are part of what is fueling any push for alternate social media, what is being billed by these other companies as free speech. But we should note, Parler does have standards. Parler does moderate content. It might not be a lot of moderating, and they're not particularly high standards, but Parler removed, for example, unhinged attorney Lynn Wood's post when he called for the execution of former Vice President Mike Pence. Trump's Truth Social company, according to Public Citizen, blocks some content that promotes abortion rights. Variety reported that a number of Truth Social users, Democrats, were blocked from posting about the January 6th hearings. So all of these sites have some standards, not high ones, but they ain't pure free speech sites. That claim is more about marketing than it is about the principle of pure free speech. The fewest rules, the lowest standards, are at the social media site Gab, which currently gets nearly 10 times more monthly visits on average than Parler. I signed up for Gab this morning. I clicked on Explore, which took me to popular posts across Gab. I came in with an open mind, and immediately Gab hit me with this post. Quote, we are in a wartime, but it's a quiet war perpetrated by the Jew, with a picture of Adolf Hitler. And there was plenty more where that came from. The N-word is super big on Gab. It is a cesspool of hate. But we should note, Gab moderates content too. You can't transmit unwanted advertising or promotional material on Gab. You can't impersonate someone else on Gab. You can't do anything that might cause Gab itself to be harassed on Gab. So again, Gab too does not just allow any speech. It takes precautions. It doesn't seem to care about hate speech, however. The suspect who killed 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh in 2018, he frequently attacked Jews in his posts on Gab. He was targeting Jews right up until the moment he got out of his car and went in to slaughter innocent Jews. Some of the users on Gab after the massacre hailed him as a hero. So what can and what should be done here? Unfortunately, lawmakers in Congress have not really figured it out. And by it, I mean how to turn on their computers and use a mouse. How do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. Is Twitter the same as what you do? It overlaps. Will you commit to ending Finsta? We don't actually do, do Finsta. So you can be forgiven for not thinking Congress is going to ride to the rescue and save us from this conundrum. Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis wrote almost 100 years ago that for bad speech, for lies and evil, quote, the remedy to be applied is more speech, not enforced silence. It's a proposition with which I generally agree, 
bad speech should be met with better speech, not with censorship. In the aftermath of the synagogue attack, executives at Gab said something similar, quote, the answer to bad speech will always be more speech, unquote. But the more speech I saw in Gab this afternoon was more speech extolling Nazis and more speech engaging in Holocaust denial and more speech sharing more hideously racist posts than I've ever seen in one place in my life. I saw less of it, but still too much of it on Parler today. It's high time we recognize that the hate on many of these far-right sites is not just an unfortunate result of belief in free speech. The hate is the whole point. So is this where the First Amendment is headed, destined to become a shiny plaything for the super rich? What kind of freedom is that for the rest of us? Well, we're going to talk freely about it with business world guru Scott Galloway next. Kanye West, or Ye, as he's now called, is speaking out in a new interview with Bloomberg about why he's moving to acquire the social media platform Parler, saying, quote, when I got kicked off of Instagram and Twitter at the time, I knew it was time to acquire my own platform. We're using this as a net for the people who have been bullied by the thought police to come and speak their mind. Express how you feel. Express what's tied up inside of you. Express what's been haunting you. I use social media as my therapist, unquote. Remember, he was kicked off Instagram and Twitter for threatening to kill Jews. Ye also told Bloomberg that he expects to have dinner with Donald Trump this week and that he plans to invite the former president to use Parler. And joining me now is Scott Galloway, a tech entrepreneur and business professor at NYU. Scott, good to see you. So, Trump, Kanye, Elon Musk, three billionaires who either have social media platforms or are trying to acquire them. If you could get all three together in a room, what would you tell them? Uh, come on in, the water's fine. You caught the car. You know, billionaires acquiring media platforms, there's nothing original, but they usually have guardrails in the form of with Bezos, Benioff, or Bloomberg have media companies, they have newsrooms and they have editors and they have some respect for, for fact-checking or some, some attempt to find a North Star around the truth. This doesn't feel like free speech, it feels like me speech. And they're just finding a platform that will let them say whatever they want unfettered. And here's here's the bad news. The catalyst for them pursuing these platforms was such that they could continue to spew this anti-Semitic or mis- uh, hate or, or misinformation around election. Here's the good news. These platforms are failing. Uh, consumers have voted and they want some form of moderation and they want edited content. So you know, come on in, the water's fine. All three of these billionaires are already individuals with huge platforms. Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kanye West. None of them seems particularly focused on being responsible about what they say with these platforms. Does that concern you? Yeah, but I don't think it's their fault. I think it's our fault. Specifically, citizens have to elect representatives that will hold these platforms to the same standards we hold other media companies. And that is, if you incite an insurrection or violence on a platform, that platform should be subject to the same liability that you and I would be subject to if something we said resulted in violence. Section 230 needs carve-outs. The way they carved out human trafficking, they need carve-outs for 
uh, health misinformation or anything that rallies violence. Fox News anchors had to go on air and directly refute their previous statements that Dominion voting machines had been weaponized by the Venezuelan government. And that is absolutely the right thing. So it's our fault. We need to elect representatives that understand technology and stop letting these platforms spread misinformation and have algorithms that like incendiary content and give it more organic, give it more sunlight than we get organically. The dissenter's voice is important. The free mm -hmm. speech is important. But giving this type of hate speech and misinformation more reach than it would on its own, that's a problem. So I read an interesting paper uh, in the Columbia Law Review about how a lot of the more mainstream platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, started really clamping down much more during the pandemic because of fears of erroneous health information. And I certainly understand that. But at the same time, Facebook clamped down on folks who were theorizing, not, not fringe people either, like scientists, doctors, who were theorizing about the origin of, of the Wuhan virus, of COVID-19, about the lab leak theory, about the, the fresh market, the, the wet market theory. And they later had to take it back. They later had to unban those comments. So... I hear what you're saying, but I guess in another, uh, another way of saying it is it's easier said than done. Um, misinformation one day sometimes becomes a legitimate target uh, for discussion the next. I think that's a fair point. And even, even early on, I don't remember, even some of our health organizations were saying that masks were not effective and to not worry about not getting a mask. And that ended up not being true. Fringe theories become sometimes less fringe. I guess the issue is the following, and that is, should you have algorithms that uh, look at anxiety and anger as the key components of what they decide to put in other people's feeds? And that is, again, the dissenter's voice is important. Someone should be able to say that uh, mRNA vaccine might alter your DNA. That's fine. The question is whether algorithms and some of our brightest people and best resource companies should have an incentive to spread that type of information beyond the reach it would get organically because it is incendiary. That's, that seems to be such a key part of this because I just know as being a social media user, um, the more benign a post, the more one appeals to uh, the charitable impulses uh, of a user, uh, a reader, the less it seems to make its way around the internet. Uh, yeah. Whereas if I, you know, if I, for instance, if I, if I do a Philadelphia Eagles rooting, uh, cheering tweet, a lot of people see that because a lot of people don't wanna, don't wanna read about me loving the Philadelphia Eagles. Well, I mean, this is, this is just a history of media gone, starting to exponentially advance. And that is in the 70s, ABC decided they were making so much money with Tang commercials and Pontiac commercials uh, in the midst of the Brady Bunch of the Partridge family that they would run this public service called News. And it was 21 minutes of fact and three minutes of opinion. And they found that the ratings were much greater for opinion. And we're all a bit guilty of this, Jake, in media. And that is we've decided that more controversial novel content is more entertaining, engages users, and is more profitable. And all of these social media companies have figured out a way to turn us all into Tyrannosaurus, into Tyrannosaurus Rexes, where we're drawn towards violence and movement. 
And falsehoods and conspiracies spread seven times faster. So unfortunately, our traditional media companies and especially our new media companies have a profit incentive around spreading misinformation. I'm here in London, and I do think there's some value to the notion of publicly supported media that tries to call balls and strikes and then a layer of for-profit media. I think both are important, but there's no doubt about it. Our incentives are creating a world where our discourse is becoming more coarse. And if you want more profits, you should engage in misinformation. Before you go, I need to ask, is the Musk deal with Twitter, do you think it's going to go through? Yeah, I think so. I think he's entered into a terrible deal. This will go down as the second worst acquisition in history on the day of closing. This is a company that's worth 10 to 15 bucks a share. He's paying 54.20. His shareholders are going to make him, are going to force him to close. Uh, the Chancery Court is ready to force him to close. And again, on the first day, the moment this closes, it, it becomes probably the second worst acquisition in history, just behind the acquisition of Time Warner by AOL. But yeah, I do think it closes, Jake. Scott Galloway, thank you so much. Good to see you as always. Thank you, Jake. The name struck fear in the Pacific theater of World War II. It's striking fear across Ukraine now. The word, of course, is kamikaze. This time it's kamikaze or suicide drones. Former ambassador to the United Nations, John Bolton, joins me now to look at Russia's new strategy and the Iranian factor. That's next. Tonight, even Ukrainians living far from the war's front lines in the country's capital city are keeping one eye on the sky. This is what they do not want to see, a so-called kamikaze drone. They're one and done, destroyed in an attack. They're cheaper than the missiles Russia has been using, and they're part of a deadly new assault on Ukraine's civilian population and critical infrastructure. The Ukrainian military says its forces have managed to shoot down most of Russia's kamikaze drones, but that's a little consolation when the fireball over the skyline could be targeting your home next. I'm joined now by John Bolton, former ambassador to the United Nations under President George W. Bush and former national security advisor under President Donald Trump. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, thanks for being here. So Vladimir Putin obviously doesn't care about committing war crimes. He's sending these into and they are successfully killing civilians um, how can the rest of the world hold him accountable? Well, I think the, the most important thing we can do is help the Ukrainians defeat the Russians, because ultimately the solution for the West as a whole is regime change in Russia. That's not going to be easy. It's not going to occur soon. But one thing is certain. If Putin's aggression is seen as succeeding in Ukraine, even in part, it will strengthen his position in Russia and it will send terrible signals to other capitals, specifically Beijing. So there's a lot on the line here, not just in terms of security in Europe, but really security around the world. Are you worried if House Republicans take back the House that support for military aid to Ukraine will dissipate? We've already seen sizable portions of the House Republican conference say that they don't support this war. Well, I think the message is a little mixed, and I think uh, when they see what the progress is being made on the battlefield, I think that will change. Some of it were easy votes because they knew that there would be majorities to support Biden's request for assistance. I think in the Senate, uh, by contrast, that the Republican dissent has been minimal. Um, If the idea of these constant attacks on the civilian population is to break Ukrainian support, 
Uh, it does not appear to be working. We got uh, our hands on a new Gallup poll uh, that is going to be released tomorrow. It finds that 70% of Ukrainians want Zelensky to keep fighting. 91% of Ukrainians tell Gallup it will not be a win until they get back all their territory, including Crimea. Does that surprise you? No, I'm, I'm with the Ukrainians. I, I'm not sure the target is Ukrainian morale. I think it's European morale, morale in Germany, morale in France and other countries, winter's coming. It's not at all clear they have enough energy to get uh, through the winter, home heating needs and things like that, but especially their uh, manufacturing and production needs. We're all going into a recession, it looks like. Europe's recession may be deeper, and if their factories aren't functioning, it'll be deeper still. And that will allow Putin to prey on European leaders who just want to turn the page now anyway, uh, so that what he cannot win on the battlefield, he may win by breaking Europe's political resolve. How about the Iranians? Because according to the U.S. and its allies, they're the ones providing Russia with these drones, these kamikaze drones, which would be in violation of the United Nations resolution, which would bar Iran from buying or selling weapons. Uh, You're a former U.N. ambassador. What can the U.N. do about it? Heavens, can you imagine Iran <laughs> violating a U.N. resolution? Unimaginable. Like, like their nuclear agreement that the Biden administration is still trying to pursue. This, this Iranian regime is busy building nuclear weapons, repressing its own people, especially the women, selling drones to Russia. Uh, uh, I think this is, the, this is an indication of really what the new uh, entente between Russia, Iran, and China is going to look like. I think it's one more reason to support the opposition in Iran, to see the regime overthrown, uh, but also to make the point that it doesn't matter who aids the Russians here. We are going to stick with the Ukrainians. We are going to defeat this aggression. Um, The Ukrainians have kamikaze drones, too. They have been sending theirs to target uh, a military base in Crimea, an air base uh, in in Sevastopol, and Russian uh, ships. That's what they're using theirs for legitimate military uh, targets. What does it tell you that Putin is using theirs for civilians, attacking civilians? Well, at least for a time, he was trying to knock out the infrastructure, power production, that sort of thing. Now it just looks indiscriminate. But I will say the U.S. and others have held the Ukrainians back, uh, except the Ukrainians have gotten a little bit more uh, on the offensive mode here in Crimea, in, in territory Putin considers Russian. And I think they ought to do more of that. I mean, you don't have to be polite when somebody invades your country. You should be allowed to go after targets in their country, too, which the Ukrainians have done. They just haven't taken credit for it. Before you go, I wanted to get your reaction uh, from this uh, post on Truth Social from your former boss, Donald Trump, uh, calling for American Jews to be, quote, more appreciative of his administration's work regarding Israel. He wrote, U.S. Jews have to get their act together and appreciate what they have in Israel before it is too late. Uh, A lot of people thought that was pretty anti-Semitic. What was your take? Well, I think it's anti-Semitic. It's also very typical of Trump is look at all that I've done. How can you not support me? This is the kind of attitude that brought the kind of destruction that we saw uh, during and at the end of his administration in particular. It's more evidence. He's just not fit to be president. Former Ambassador uh, John Bolton, thanks so much for being here. It's good to see you again. While Ukraine fights off an enemy invader, America is battling an enemy within opioid addiction. It could be an even harder foe to vanquish. And now this insidious and deadly problem has become an issue in the midterm elections, especially in Ohio. And we'll tell you about that next.
Ohio is one of the states hit hardest by the opioid epidemic here in America. And tonight, the crisis was a key point of discussion during the final debate between Senate candidates Tim Ryan, the Democrat, and J.D. Vance, the Republican. Ryan using the opportunity to criticize Vance for pulling out of a fundraiser over the weekend after it was reported that one of the hosts, Dr. Raj Beer Minhas, had been cited in a lawsuit against Purdue Pharma, a company accused of worsening the crisis, as well as other companies. Take a listen. As recently as Saturday, JD was doing a fundraiser with a guy who was raising him money, was one of the top 10 pill pushers, doctors, in the entire country. And he just canceled it. You know why? Because the press broke the story and he got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Joining us now to discuss is Patrick Redden-Keefe. He's the author of Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. Also with us, Beth Macy, the author of Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company that Addicted America. Beth, let me start with you, because J.D. Vance gave a statement to CNN responding to pulling out of that weekend fundraiser that reads, quote, J.D.'s own mother suffered from opioid addiction for years. This issue is deeply personal to J.D., and Tim Ryan's attempts to weaponize it against him is disgusting. Tim Ryan has taken tens of thousands of dollars from the very big pharma giants who paid billions for their roles in the opioid epidemic, unquote. So let me remove you two from the back and forth in the Ohio Senate race. How much do you think, Beth, that lawmakers in general are at least partly culpable for the opioid crisis? Well, I think of the words of uh, Richard Sackler, who said, um, I can get any senator or congressman on the phone in in an hour if I want to. I think the opioid crisis is brought to us uh, by greed. Um, I think the the Sacklers and Purdue started it and then other companies uh, joined in and that our regulatory systems were basically bought off, everything from the FDA and the DEA to medical education journals that got co-opted by companies. So I think very much it's uh, the opioid crisis is here as an indictment of the entire system. And Patrick, J.D. Vance also went after Ryan for accepting money from pharmaceutical companies. Take a listen. Those commercials are paid for by pharmaceutical blood money because Tim Ryan received tens of thousands of dollars from the very companies that have profited off of this. And that's exactly how he's able to fund the lies that he's been putting on TV against me. Ryan says uh, that his record on taking on big pharma is, quote, impeccable. Again, stepping away from this Ohio Senate race. What specifically do you think all the money that big pharma has given to all the politicians across the country, what has that resulted in? Well, I mean, it's resulted in a public health crisis that killed more than half a million Americans, right? I think that what you saw over a period of decades really was huge spending by these companies that were generating billions of dollars selling these pills. And what they were trying to do was change the mind of the medical establishment to say these drugs aren't addictive, they should be more widely prescribed. When you started getting lawmakers looking into tightening up regulations to make it harder to prescribe them, they would lobby and work on those. When the Justice Department or state authorities tried to pursue criminal actions or civil actions, they found ways in which to, uh, to stop them from doing so. And so I think it's really a story about the awesome power of private money to corrupt public institutions that should be protecting citizens and consumers. Beth, the conversation about uh, fentanyl and the U.S.-Mexico border has become intermingled with the conversation 
uh, about the opioid crisis. J.D. Vance uh, has slammed Tim Ryan and President Biden for not stopping the flow of fentanyl across the U.S.-Mexico border. Explain to us the the relationship between the border and fentanyl crisis and the opioid crisis, because some people might think that they're, they're different. Yeah, well, you know, fentanyl really started at the end of the Obama administration. It blew up during uh, the Trump administration, and it continues today uh, during the Biden administration. It's basically what is creating most of the 108,000 deaths that we had, overdose deaths that we had in the last year. And what I think we saw tonight with the debate was uh, Vance in particular using fentanyl as a way to sort of... uh, hand ring about immigration and use it's a very political um tool what i didn't hear either one of them talk about was the treatment gap that we have in this nation which is 87 percent. that means only 13 percent of people with opioid use disorder or oud managed to get treatment in the last year and so we've we've, sure we've got to stop fentanyl at the border, but uh, we also have to equally put our efforts into stopping the demand for it, because we know that people who are addicted aren't doing it at the end of their journey just to get high. They're doing it to avoid being dope sick. And until we start to uh, treat them as human beings with treatable medical conditions, we're going to continue to have overdose deaths going up every year. And Patrick, the latest numbers from the CDC show the epidemic's getting worse. Um, As Beth just mentioned, 108,022 Americans died from drug overdoses from May 2021 to May 2022. That's an increase of 6.7% since last year. And this is is now a period of time when the country is well aware of the opioid crisis. How is it still continuing? Well, I think part of the reason, actually, you can see in this debate where there is this tendency, it's a very American tendency to think of these issues exclusively in terms of supply side, to think we will solve this purely by thinking about supply and not thinking about demand, not taking a hard look at ourselves. Years ago, I was writing an article about the Sinaloa cartel, the Mexican drug cartel. I remember interviewing a uh, a DEA agent, and he told me, this is years ago, he told me about them building a stretch of border wall Uh, in Arizona, this high-tech, very expensive wall, and they built it. And he said the next day, the cartels were down there with a catapult, throwing 100-pound bales of marijuana over the wall. You have catapults going over the wall. You've got over 100 tunnels that have been dug under the wall. You are not going to solve the opioid crisis at the southern border. I think that's politically convenient, but but a bit of a fantasy. Patrick and Beth, stick with us. I have more questions for you, because the Sackler family used to be synonymous with wealth and prestige and philanthropy, It can be challenging to discuss the opioid crisis without mentioning them. Patrick wrote a book about it. And a new documentary examines the push to get museums to just say no to Sackler money. We're going to continue the conversation after the break. Stay with us. The Sackler family, one of the most notorious families in the United States, blamed by many victims of the opioid crisis for helping to fuel it for pure profit. The Sacklers own Purdue Pharmaceuticals, the makers of OxyContin, one of the drugs responsible for the thousands of overdose deaths in America every year. In March of 2021, the Sackler family reached a roughly $6 billion settlement with a group of states that had been suing Purdue Pharma. They did that in exchange for immunity against future civil lawsuits. But a bankruptcy judge rejected the settlement and immunity deal, a ruling currently on appeal 
the movement against the billionaire dynasty, known for their philanthropic donations to some of the world's most prestigious universities and museums, continues to snowball. The new documentary, All the Beauty and Bloodshed, looks at the life of activist Nan Golden, who has made it her mission to convince museums to part ways with the Sackler family. We need to demand that the Met Museum, the Louvre, the Tate, refuse donations from the Sacklers and take down their names. The rich people are scared that we're going to dig into the evil way they make money. And we're back with Patrick Redden Keefe and Beth Macy. Macy is the author of a brand new book called Raising Lazarus, Hope, Justice, and the Future of the Overdose Crisis. Both of them uh, are authors and, and brilliant chronicles and uh, journalists about this opioid crisis. And Patrick, you wrote the, the book about the Sackler family, the book, definitive book, and their connection to the opioid crisis. Explain why this settlement was significant. Well, I think there were a lot of people who uh, had been pushing for accountability for the Sackler family for a long time. This is a family that until recently, you know, their name was emblazoned on universities and art museums, and they were really celebrated as the the cream of the crop in elite America. Uh, And nobody was really connecting them to this terrible overdose crisis that they said had such a hand in, in helping to create. You end up with this kind of funny situation in which their company ends up in bankruptcy court, you might wonder how could a company that's generated $35 billion in revenue for this one drug end up in bankruptcy? The reason is because the family had been quietly pulling money out of the company for 10 years leading up to this. So eventually you get all these lawsuits against the company and the family's taken more than $10 billion out of the company and they say, well, too bad, you know, the company's bankrupt. So they got to keep the money. You end up with this settlement in which they've committed to paying $6 billion, which is either a lot or a little, depending on your point of view, and they're going to get this sweeping grant of immunity. So this is an outcome that I think has left a lot of victims of the opioid crisis feeling pretty raw, feeling as though that's, that's not justice. And Beth, you've written the definitive book about, about the, the victims on the front lines, dope sick. While this deal was being heralded as a breakthrough, many, many victims of the opioid crisis found it so unsatisfying because they're... They have struggled. They've lost loved ones. They're still struggling uh, because of the epidemic. The Sackler family family has voiced, quote, regret, but they deny any wrongdoing, Beth. Uh, They say in a court filing, quote, while the families have acted lawfully in all respects, they sincerely regret that OxyContin and prescription medicine that continues to help people suffering from chronic pain unexpectedly became part of an opioid crisis that has brought grief Mm. and loss to far too many families and communities. CNN, we should reach out, we should note, reached out for additional comment from the Sacklers and did not get any. What's your take on all this, Beth? Well, unexpectedly is a joke. They knew as early as 1999 that the drug was being widely diverted and sold and massively overprescribed. Um, a, a doctor I profiled in Dope Sick calls Purdue in the early aughts and says, look, I know your label says Uh, It's virtually non-addictive, but I've got kids I immunized as babies who are overdosing in the high school library. And and they laughed at him. They they wrote him off as a joke, and they continue to do that. They're they're recidivist criminals. You know they've the company has pleaded guilty twice, but no, uh, none of the Sackler owners have um, have been charged. So. You know, I follow in my new book, I follow the travails of Nan Golden and her group Pain and the parents of the dead. They come together as the ad hoc committee on accountability. Last December, uh, while uh, the case was on its way to being appealed again, um, 
they held a rally outside of the Department of Justice where they begged the DOJ to do its J-O-B. And I think <laughs> that's what a lot of the uh, more than one million uh, families that have lost folks uh, want the DOJ to do. Beth Macy and Patrick Redden Keefe, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for your journalism. It's so important, and I'm so honored that you would be here tonight with me. We'll be right back. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. Our coverage now continues with the magnificent Laura Coates and the splendid Allison Camerata. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.